In May of 1989, a bizarre crime in Austin, Texas, gripped the nation. Someone has messed with an irreplaceable part of Texas history. It became news overnight. And not just Texas news, it became national news. It's on the front page of the New York Times. It's playing out on all the network TVs. The details of the scene were grisly. Somebody had forced an Austin native to drink a gallon of a deadly chemical. I just think it's real sad and scary, too, that someone could even think of this kind of crime. The city's outrage was palpable. After all, the victim was one of the most well-known residents of Austin. It's pathetic. I can't imagine anyone doing anything like that. I just feel so badly about this. Why? I just keep asking myself, why? And just who was the victim at the center of this crime? A tree. I'm Drew Beebe, and this is Great Big Story. Today, we'll hear the story of the poisoning of a 600-year-old tree called Treaty Oak. Over the course of one summer, this single oak tree went from a local Austin landmark to a victim of a bizarre crime to the site of an international media circus. And as the Austin Police Department launched an investigation to find the culprit, the city's lone forester was given an impossible task to bring Treaty Oak back from the brink of death. And throughout the whole fiasco, a single question lingered. Who would want to murder a tree? Producer Phil Rubibro has the story. When I met John Kudritis, the first thing we talked about was just how much he loves trees. Trees don't ask for anything. They just give everything. This morning I had oatmeal with apples and walnuts in it. Apples and walnuts come from trees. I mean, they're the cradle that rocks you when you're a baby, and they're the casket that they put you in when you're dead. With that perspective, it's easy to see why Gudritis studied arboriculture in college. And in 1985, the Parks Department of Austin, Texas, was looking for their first city forester. Gudritis' passion for pines, oak, and mesquites made him an easy hire. I was in charge of all the street trees. We had about 115,000 trees along the streets, all the park trees and all the cemetery trees. Pretty much if there was a tree issue in the city of Austin, I was the guy that they called. But of all the trees he was tasked to maintain, there was one tree that Gudritis loved the most. We had several historic trees in Austin, but the most important tree was the treaty oak. The Treaty Oak in the 1920s was voted by the American Forestry Association as the most perfect specimen of a live oak in North America. It's a five or 600-year-old tree that owns its own park in the capital of Texas. It's about 50 feet tall. It's about four feet in diameter. So three people holding hands around the tree, that's about how big around it was and it had a spread of about 90 or 100 feet. The branches come out, they swoop down to the ground, and then they come up again. It was a a beautiful, beautiful specimen. Beyond its aesthetic qualities, Treaty Oak was steeped in Austin legend. And in the 1820s, Stephen F. Austin, the father of Texas, signed a boundary treaty. 
Native Americans had all the land to the west and Austin had all the land to the east. So it was important from a historical point of view. It's a very special place for people. The symbolism bestowed onto it saved Treaty Oak the Tree from becoming Treaty Oak the Dinner Table. Decades of urban development in Austin have felled thousands of trees. And yet wedged between an industrial park and commercial high-rises is a half-acre plot with a single hardwood. For Gadritis, Treaty Oak's survival was a testament to its enduring strength. And it was a place for him to make one of the most important decisions of his life. When I decided to proposed to my wife, I proposed under the treaty oak, because it's a big, beautiful tree. It's true, it's good, it's an enduring strength, and I thought that that would be a great place as the city forester and as somebody who loves trees to, to make that proposal. And luckily she accepted, and here we are 30 years later. <laughs> Four years into his job, Gudritis had a good handle on it. But one day in 1989, everything changed. Gudratis was hosting other state foresters from around the country, and he gave them a tour of all the beautiful parks Austin had to offer. Of course, one of those stops on the tour is going to be the Treaty Oak. And we got there, and we saw some dead grass on the ground. It looked like uh, someone had dripped some chemical edge or something like that. And I just assumed it was a parks employee that got a little sloppy and something drained out of the tank or something like that. So I didn't give it a second thought. But a few months later, Gudratis saw that the circle of dead grass was expanding, and worse, the leaves on the tree were turning brown. Right away, we dug some of the soil, took some tissue samples, sent it off to the laboratory, and a week or two later, we got the results back that the treaty oak had been poisoned. And the type of poison? A powerful herbicide manufactured by DuPont, known as Velpar. It's a very effective chemical. It works in very small quantities. We think probably a few ounces would kill a tree the size of the treaty oak. And we suspect that between a quart and a gallon was used. So it was a very serious situation. Immediately, Gudritis picked up the phone and called everyone he could think of. We called in the experts from DuPont. The Department of Agriculture. We called in the experts from the university, the University of Texas, Texas A&M University, West Texas A&M. And then he called the police. We knew right away that the tree had been poisoned by the fact that, that that compound, that herbicide, had been used. But when he reported that the treaty oak had been vandalized, the Austin Police Department thought it was a joke. I think a lot of folks viewed it as being beneath the dignity of the office. So, of course, the case was handed over to the new guy. My name is John Jones. I was a detective for the Austin Police Department in the general assignments detail. After 13 years working as an undercover street cop, Jones was pretty burnt out. Looking for a switch, he transferred into a detective unit, and Treaty Oak would be one of his first cases. My supervisor and a couple other people thought it'd be kind of funny to give me this case. Criminal mischief is what the title was. The Treaty Oak was the quote-unquote victim. They thought that was just hilarious. And after talking to Jones, he kind of looked at it that way, too. But who could blame him? A grizzled undercover cop now had to serve Texas justice on behalf of a tree. There's this great photo of me looking for clues, 
in the dirt. Yeah, all I needed was the houndtooth hat and a pipe and a big old magnifying glass. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. I never like to make light of crime, but it was a tree. <laughs> but a case is a case, and Jones took it seriously. The early days of the investigation proved to be tough. Jones had nothing to work off of. No witnesses, no CCTV, no DNA, nothing. To help stir the pot, DuPont and the Austin Forestry Service offered up an $11,000 reward. And that got the attention of the media. Who killed Treaty Oak, Austin's legendary oak tree? The Treaty Oak, once called the most perfect live oak in North America. Why are people in the Texas state capitol so upset? Who would want to murder a tree? It was spreading far and wide. I was fielding phone calls from Tokyo, from England, from Canada. We were just getting calls all over the place. Jones went from being the new guy to the most well-known cop in Austin. And with the case of Treaty Oak on everyone's mind, the breakthrough was not far behind. Meanwhile, back at Treaty Oak, Gadridis was having a similar experience. John Gadridis. John Gadridis. John Gadridis is a forester with the Austin Parks Department, and he joins us this morning under the Treaty Oak. How is it doing? Well, it's, uh, it's in not such good condition right now because of the poison that's been applied around the base of it. When all the media attention started to focus on the tree, I became the natural spokesman for its condition. As well as being the voice for Treaty Oak, Gadridis also had to explain to the rest of the world why Austin cared so much about this tree. Everybody in Austin knew the Treaty Oak. They had gone out there as an elementary school kid. They had gone out there with their date to have a picnic, or they'd even proposed to their wife under the tree. We had people that had their ashes sprinkled under the tree, lots of them. So it is a very, very special spot. It was something that belonged to the people of Austin. So people were outraged. I mean, just outraged. It had to be an idiot or a maniac to kill a tree like that. It's probably equivalent to maybe uh, bombing the Capitol or something. And that the old frontier justice should be reinstated, at least in this person's case. Even with emotions running high, Gadridis had to keep a level head to focus on the task at hand, saving the tree. And we called the experts in. Pretty much all of them that were familiar with the way that this compound works said that this tree is a dead tree, that it will not survive. Reversing the effects of Velpar would require nothing short of divine intervention. And to do the impossible, no idea was off the table. We tried some radical stuff. We tried injecting salt into the tree so it would move the poison off the tissue of the tree and out to the leaves. They drilled eight pounds of diluted sugar into the tree trunk to spur leaf production. And we started chopping the big roots off the tree to try and separate the healthy tree from the roots that were contaminated. To keep it cool, they put up giant screens to shade the tree during the hottest times of the day. We put a big tank of spring water next to the park. We would sprinkle the tree with just a very fine mist of water and drop the temperature 10 or 15 degrees. For Gadridis and his team of experts, it was a tough job. But they weren't alone. Folks came to the tree, hundreds, thousands of people came by that heard about it in the news. And they left chicken soup, mallocs, they left tums, 
They left nickels and dimes and dollars. They mailed cards and letters from all over the world. Get well soon, we're praying for you. Whether it was the evangelicals that came out there or the Buddhist monks or the white witches, the New Agers with the crystals, all these groups of people went there and tried to connect with the spirit to try and help it, to try and heal it. But no matter what they did, Velpar's long march through Treaty Oak system didn't seem to abate. Gedritus and his cohorts did everything that they could. All there was left to do was to let Treaty Oak decide its own fate. When we come back, the police close in on a suspect in the poisoning. And they find that the person's motives are even stranger than the crime itself. Stick around right here on Great Big Story. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. We're back with the story of the poisoning of Treaty Oak. It was the summer of 1989, and Austin City Forester John Gadritis was desperately trying to save the historic Treaty Oak from a powerful poison. And at the same time, Detective John Jones of the Austin Police Department was in charge of answering the question, who tried to kill this tree? Producer Phil Rabibero will take it from here. With all the media attention the Treaty Oak was getting, Jones hoped someone would hear about the case and come forward with information. He was soon contacted by a woman named Cindy Blackow. The big break came when we got a tip from a lady who said she thought she knew who did it. And she was credible. I, I got to admit that. I went out and talked to her. Blackout was acquainted with a man named Paul Stedman Cullen. Blackout and Cullen carpooled to a local methadone clinic together. During one of their car rides, Cullen talked about the affections he had for his mental health counselor. And she wasn't returning that love. Blackout alleged that Cullen looked into books on witchcraft that included rituals like drawing magic circles and life sacrifices. He was supposedly hoping to find some kind of anti-love spell in order to mend his broken heart. The details of the exact ritual Cullen may have read about are pretty murky, but Blackout claimed that Cullen thought killing a living thing would also kill the love in his heart. They said, well, let me pick the biggest thing around here and kill it, and as it decomposes, so will my love for for her. I'm not making that up. (sighs) But to arrest Cullen, Jones needed a smoking gun. He wanted to get Cullen to admit to the crime discreetly. So Jones utilized his undercover chops. Main reason probably got solved because I'd just come from an undercover unit and I knew about working with informants. In Blackout, she was going to be his golden goose. We wired her up, sent her out, and she gathered the evidence for us. She didn't ask him leading questions or anything like that. She just pretty much said, 
So tell me about what you did with the tree again. And, you know, it's like putting a dollar in a jukebox. You know, you just get all kinds of stuff. Based on what he told her on the wire, we went and got an arrest warrant. And then I went and got an evidentiary search warrant to search his residence, his truck. At Cullen's home, police found a stack of books that ran the gamut between religion and quantum mechanics. In his truck, they seized a 22 caliber rifle and some dirt samples to test for Velpar. With all the mounting evidence, it seemed like the trial would be an open and shut case. And the stakes were high for Cullen. With two prior convictions, he could serve up to life in prison. But a pro bono lawyer stepped forward to make sure Cullen got a fair shake. It's Terry Kirk. Hey, Terry, it's Phil. Yes. To get a detailed look at the Treaty Oak trial, I got in touch with Terry Kirk. I was co-counsel for the defendant, Paul Cullen, in the case at trial, and then I was also his appellate lawyer. Throughout the trial, Cullen maintained his innocence. But Terry still had to defend against three major pieces of evidence. Number one, the Velpar. The least damaging was the fact that they didn't find any Velpar when they did a search warrant on his residence. When they impounded his truck, policemen did decide to get some dirt from the back of the truck and have it tested to see if there were traces of the chemical. Most of the Velpar samples taken from Cullen's truck came back positive. However, Terry argued that the tests were faulty. Where they tested was the chief place in the country where they manufactured Velpar. Because of this, there was a high chance the samples were contaminated, and therefore the tests were not reliable. Number two, the books on witchcraft. Equally non-conclusive was the fact that the state's theory was that he had read somewhere that you could kill your love for a woman by poisoning a tree. So Terry retrieved all the books Cullen had at home during the search and seizure. I introduced the books one by one, and there was nowhere in any of those books of any talk about poisoning an oak tree. So that was nonsense. Because Jones was not able to produce any physical evidence, Terry argued that it was impossible to prove that Cullen practiced the occult. But the third piece of evidence was hard to deny, the secret tape recording. The reaction of the tape was, you know, well, this is damaging. So when I heard it, I was disturbed, let me put it that way. By most accounts, the two-hour recording is long gone. But we do know what was said from the available transcripts. During the recording, Blacko asks, why did you have to put poison around a stupid tree and kill it? Colin responds, at first it didn't seem like a good idea, you know. What the hell? It's only a tree. The recording was the key to the, the whole case. And without the recording, I don't know that they would ever have arrested him. Colin later adds, I think I've learned my lesson here. If I can get away with this, I'll be satisfied. I'll call it even. With that, the prosecution rested its case. After deliberating for three and a half hours, the jury made its decision. 
The verdict was guilty as charged, and the sentence was nine years imprisonment. For Terry, this was a fair trial, but he felt that the public's feelings towards Cullen were out of proportion. In Terry's eyes, Cullen was a person deserving of some sympathy. He had a troubled childhood. The Austin American Statesman reported that on the tape, Cullen talked about his father's abuse and threatened abandonment. Cullen was a drifter, saying that no matter what he did, he never could fit in. Paul had had uh, problems with addiction. He was an intelligent person. I didn't ever regard him as violent. He seemed like just down on his luck and maybe uh, the problem with his life was drugs. While the courtroom drama was unfolding, Treaty Oak was still fighting for its life. But over time, Gerdritis was seeing signs of hope. 1990, about a year later, the leaves started coming out and not being contaminated. So that's when we knew that whatever we had done or the tree had done, that we had gotten most of the poison out of the tissue. The concentration was going down and down and down. And that's when I started to get optimistic again and say, whoa, maybe we have a chance here. And it was going to probably survive. It appeared as though most of Treaty Oak was going to make it, but about a third of the tree was completely dead and had to be sawed off. We went up with our crews from the Parks Department and we cut down the, the branches and we saved every single piece of it. The city's forestry board decided to auction off the wood to artists and craftspeople. They made everything from sculptures, pens, and even a new dais in City Hall. We raised over a quarter million dollars that went into a special fund that was used to plant trees and to date has planted tens of thousands of trees across Austin. So it's like a little treaty oak forest that came out of that deadwood. It's now been over 30 years since the treaty oak ordeal. Paul Cullen would end up serving only three of his nine-year sentence. When he was released, he left for California and lived there until he passed away in 2001. Since then, John Jones has left the Austin Police Department. And in that time, he's had a lot to ruminate on. I think a lot of officers would have just ain't investigating that. It's not worth my time. Well, yeah, it is. It's worth your time to somebody out there. We work for the public. Okay? We don't get to choose our victims or choose our witnesses or choose our suspects. We have to work with what's given to us. You know, I might make light of the circumstances around it, but at the end of the day, there's a guy with a conviction on his record for doing it. The end. In Gadritis, he still works in forestry, serving as the executive director for the Texas chapter of the International Society of Arboriculture. From his perspective, it's easy to understand why we're still talking about Treaty Oak all these years later. Over the years, I've been able to sort of think about the role that trees play in all the major religions. Christ on the cross is the fruit of the tree of eternal life. The Bodhi tree that Buddha sat under and achieved enlightenment. The Torah is called the tree of life. So the tree is a powerful, powerful symbol for humanity. I've been able to think about that a little bit since then through the treaty oak, which is a very powerful symbol of man trying to capture the power of the earth. 
in my own way, it's become sort of a meditation or a reflection on the world. As for Treaty Oak, well, it's still there on Fifth and Baylor. It doesn't look like it used to, but it's no less majestic. You can still find signs of where the poisoning occurred and all the branches that it lost. But as Austin's urbanization continues apace, I'd like to think that Treaty Oak wears its scars with pride. A message that it's not going anywhere anytime soon. That was producer Phil Robibero. The Great Big Story podcast is a production of Great Big Story and CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Phil Robibero and Dave Yim. Our executive producers are Sadie Bass and Megan Marcus. Francisco Monroy is our engineer. Raj Makija is our senior production manager. Additional production by Joy Jung and Evan Chung. Special thanks to Katie Hinman and Ashley Lusk. Courtney Coop is our Vice President of Digital Productions, and Ashley Codiani is our Vice President of Brand and Digital Strategy. I'm Drew Beebe. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another episode next week. <laughs> 